This episode of Intermission is presented by the streaming service Film Movement Plus. Enjoy a world of cinema today on all your favorite devices by signing up at filmmovementplus.com. Hello, uh, this is Michael Snydell, and you are listening to Intermission, episode 11, which is about Alim Klimov's 1985 war slash anti-war film, uh, Come and See. So Intermission is a, a podcast where a guest or guests, in the case of today, uh, pick one art house, foreign, or streaming film, and we talk about it at length. And today, in a little bit of a change-up, I actually have two guests talking about the aforementioned Come and See, Charlie Nash and William Willoughby. So, uh, Charlie, would you like to first introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, thanks again for having me on, Michael. Um, I'm Charlie Nash. I'm a member of the Boston Online Film Critics Association and uh, written for various outlets, primarily Edge Media. And yeah, just uh, grateful to be here. And William, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I have absolutely no connection to the film critic societies or anything like that. I'm just an avid film fan. I think I'm just bringing my insight into trauma and war. No, that's <laughs> this makes me sound like I'm a, a elitist snob who only has uh, established critics or anything. That's not the case. I'm I'm happy to have you here, William, for your your insight on trauma, which is an angle we'll talk about. But I'm I'm also excited just to talk about this film, which uh, we will get into. But let's say that it has um, elicited extreme reactions from people in in both directions. Enjoy a world of cinema with Film Movement Plus streaming subscription. Award-winning independent features, documentaries, and shorts, as well as restored classics are all waiting for you to discover. Plus, there are guaranteed new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But because you're an intermission listener, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial, plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code STAGE when signing up. So go to filmmovementplus.com and start streaming today. Charlie, you originally came to me saying you wanted to talk about this film. And William, you expressed interest as well that you wanted to talk about this. So can each of you just kind of tell me why did you want to talk about this today and um, particularly your introduction or first time with this film? So I was actually Will and I were going to go see this film the day quarantine started at um, the Brattle Theater in Boston. And then um, the theater that I work at, the Coolidge Corner Theater, shut down that day. And the Janus Films had just had this new restoration of it and, um, you know, for the new Criterion release. And so 
it's kind of funny how like this film has just defined like my entire quarantine experience has weirdly revolved around this film, <laughs> which I don't know what that says about me. But then we eventually, you know, saw that it was streaming on the Criterion channel and Will and I watched it one night and it shook me unlike any film I've ever seen. And it resulted in Will and I basically chugging scotch and sobbing. Uh, so, like, I haven't seen a film, a war film, quite like this in a way that looks like this or feels like this because there's always some thrill. Even the be even great war films, there's always some thrill to watching them in some way that I just I find this to be more of a horror film as opposed to. Uh, it or it looks and feels like a horror film more so than any war film I've ever seen. I feel like there is moral as many war films can be. There's there is an undeniable sense of a visceral. I don't want to say excitement, but there is like a, a rush you get out of it that you know I never get with this film and. I've seen it a few times now, and it still hurts upon every single viewing. And um, it's just a film that has haunted me for ever since I've seen it back when back in March. And uh, I, it's a film that I just needed to talk about with people because it made me feel something that I have never felt before, really. I think what's been interesting about this show as a whole is, you know, when people pick films, it's because they've just totally consumed them. Like, so many of these films that people have talked about, they become deeply emotional in, in trying mm -hmm. to talk to them. And we'll probably interrogate you probably too much about these. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. But Will, what was your what was your first experience with this film? I know Charlie already mentioned that you guys watched watched it together. So this film has actually been with me since two thousand four. Okay, I have seen this film more times than any rational or sane person should ever be allowed to see it. Um, so I was stationed in a Rammstein Air Base in Germany, and there was this little Russian brand um, video store, and they had the most amazing film collection. And next to the register, they had a glass case, which they'd put all their, like, rare and expensive films. And I'd go in there once a month, and I'm like, I'm going to buy one of these, you know. And so I go in, and I see this DVD that has these Nazis holding a gun to a boy's head. And I'm like, what kind of fucking snuff film is this? Like, what the <laughs> hell is this? And um, oh I had no idea what it was. And I talked to the lady behind the register. She's like, oh, that's like one of the most devastating war films ever made. I'm like, and bought. <laughs> um, and, but I never watched it. I, I had it for like three or four months and um, I never watched it. And then December of that year, so December 2004, the week of Christmas, there was a massive uh, suicide bombing in Mosul. Um, 18 soldiers were killed. And Christmas Eve at like two in the morning, we got the bodies. So we got the caskets. We had to, you know, take them off the plane, off the C-5, uh, take them to special handling, open up the caskets, re-ice the bodies, make sure everything is there if it's supposed to be there. Needless to say, it was a really shitty Christmas. And me and the guy that I work with were just done. <laughs> like our families are on the other side of the world. We're working this shitty job. And we decide to go back to the barracks and just get absolutely shit-faced. And this is how we developed this thing called The Gauntlet, which was we're going to watch the most depressing, horrifying films imaginable to see if we can't push ourselves to the brink of suicide. Like mm. – this is the one thing that 
we have control over because when you're in the military, you don't even have control over your body. You can't get a tattoo without permission. You can't go do certain dangerous shit without because you don't own it anymore. They own it. And we're in my room trying to figure out what movie to watch. And I put this on and I'm drinking absinthe and whiskey together, um, which is never a good combination. And yeah, it I mean, I, I'm still here. But that movie affected me in a way that I've never been affected by a film before. And it became like this tradition, like after any like horrific event when I was in the military, me and the guys would get together, get drunk and watch horribly depressing films. So it was this um, uh, Grave of the Fireflies, Requiem Mm. for a Dream, the 11 minute film that Inaratu made for September 11, which I think is the best thing he's ever done. And so... I probably watched it like four or five times when I was in the military. And then I hadn't watched it until in March when I introduced, I was telling Charlie about it. I wanted to see it at the Brattle. Um, And since then I've watched it five times also. So 10 times total. And it never gets any easier to watch. It never gets any easier to to digest, which I think is really powerful because normally you know what's coming. You're able to control the emotions that hit you. And this film, I can't do it. You had to take the next day off from work after we watched it, I remember. I I had to take the next day off um, after we watched it with you. I had to take the next day off work after I watched it with you and Brad. And when we watched it the other night, I didn't sleep the next day. Like, I hadn't slept. I stayed up. This movie gets inside me. And in a lot of ways, I've explained it as, like, watching it is like an act of penance in a lot of ways. Like, I'm punishing myself by watching this film, but I love it. It's beautiful. And there's a few films that I can say that about both things about that for one piece of art. It's kind of a baseline to understand where you're generally coming out coming at with uh, war movies. And Charlie, I want you to answer this as well after. But um, do you generally have a stronger feeling with war films or is this really an outlier? I mean, I generally try to avoid war films. There's very few that I've ever really liked um, and very few that ever get the experience proper and like realistic, like I could think of maybe three recent American films that kind of do it justice. And even though there's like irregularities in the facts and the history and the accuracy of like the portrayal of soldiers, the emotions and the the things that it elicits out of me feel real. So I'd be like Hurt Locker and that sense of boredom on top of anxiety all at the same time. Um, and I'd say the same thing about Jarhead and Black Hawk Down. I think those are the three most effective American war films that I've seen. Like, I'm really not a big fan of the Peter Berg stuff. I think it glorifies actions in a way that should not be done. And I think the reason why I love Come and See so much is it's the one war film I've seen that treats war like a whore. It treats it like a nightmare. Um, And that's what combat and that's what being deployed is like. It's terrifying. And you don't see that in American films too often. It's the male machismo, you know, I'm going to fight through this and stuff like that. I was telling Charlie about one of my deployments that went really horrible. And I cried in my sergeant's arms. Um, and he just comforted me because I couldn't grasp what was going on. I mean, Flora in this movie is 15. That was only five years younger than I was. And how old can a person really be to try to truly grasp the, the horrors they're seeing? Like I said, I typically just try to avoid them. Um, I can be easily triggered sometimes by some war films. And then other times I just get really angry 
war films should be dirty. War films should not be clean because war is chaos and you shouldn't have any kind of linear way of looking at it. Charlie, which is your general experience with war films as, as well? I like a lot of war films. I do. But uh, to what Will said, I like when they're realistic and grungy. Not that uh, there are definitely some like the thin red line that I find to be gorgeous and lyrical and, and, and beautiful. But yeah, like I love Apocalypse Now. I love Full Metal Jacket. But those movies are cold in a way. And this film is the coldest of all war films. I mean, there's no not not that it isn't empathetic, but it is so there's no sentimentality to it at all. And it gets to the senselessness of of war. But yeah, so like I definitely there are a lot of war films that I love, but there is a sense of guilt that I feel sometimes even with movies like Thin Red Line and Apocalypse Now that I'm almost enjoying the viewing experience too much. If that makes any sense, I think both of you um, are really, are really getting to the notion that the that this is a very different texture. Even besides the grittiness, it's it's fascinating that, in a way, you are following someone who you know is going to always get out. You know, that doesn't mean that he's unscathed or anything, but he's going to get out of a situation so that we can watch it like you can speak to that main set piece at the end where he's watching the church and you know they say the a kind of immortal line that if you leave your children you can leave and flora is one of i believe two people that the other the woman and him are the only ones who get out mm-hmm. um but it's i, I mentioned that because i think this so much has the capability to feel cheap like there are a lot of choices in here that do resemble like I, I won't just <laughs> go on 1917, but to speak to a recent example, there's a lot of the same tools here. What to you defines this as then different in in feel and in formal choices? I mean, I think the reason why this one works and others don't first off is this is a very personal film this feels like a film that needed to be made as opposed to one that you know someone wanted to make in a lot of ways um the director Klimov um I mean I know that this is somewhat semi-autobiographical about his experiences as a child um during the Nazi occupation in Belarus and it almost feels like therapy to me like he's just pouring himself out on the screen and telling this story that's the other thing that this movie does so well that I have not seen in other war films is it gets inside the mind of this character. I mean, me and Charlie have had discussions bordering our arguments almost about whether or not this had free force of his films, not in his head. Like, I believe that the scene on the island after they've gone through the bog to after yeah. she's seen the bodies and stuff like that, I'm not 100 percent convinced that free force of those people aren't already dead and that he's just seeing them in his head. It's just his guilt-ridden mind. Because he's deaf from the bomb blasts earlier. He should not be hearing them calling his name. He should not be able to have this conversation with this man who should clearly be dead by now. Um, and when he sticks his head in the mud, the sounds are louder, not quieter. It doesn't mute. It's because it's all inside his head. It's his him trying to work through this guilt because I think it's starting to come clear that at the beginning of the movie, he saw this as a game. He saw this as a way to become a man. Like, this is what men do. 
I'm going to go, you know, prove myself. And then reality hits him like a brick in the face. And he realizes what he has done. And then he goes home thinking, oh, I can get away from this. And it's already found him. It's already tracked him back. And it's, he can't escape it now. You also mentioned, Will, that um, when they're trudging through the muck of the bog, when they get to the island and he pushes Glasha into the water, the water's clear. What I think makes that this theory so brilliant, too, is if this is what is going on. And it could be literal. It absolutely could be. It doesn't really it, it works either way. But it does capture that guilt that you feel when you're coming of age. And, you know, you kind of just learn about the horrors of the world and it just suffocates you and like to get back to the bog thing like so they they go through this and it's so hard to get through and stuff like that and then when it cuts to Glashka, like she's just stood up so the water behind them is what they came through and like i said it's clear but it's clear after she tells them they're all dead and like i said i could be reading into this so like i said the movie messes with me <laughs> but it is for as graphic as this film is one of the reasons this movie haunts me so much is that he could always be showing more and if he does, I think that the movie could have been morally indefensible in many ways. Like he could show people burning inside the barn. He could show Aglasha being raped. He could show how his family died. The fa One of the most haunting shots to me is the scene before the bog is when he is motivated and he's like, I know where they are. They're on the island. And it cuts to Glasha's perspective of these bodies through a steady cam shot. And it isn't really all that clear. I mean, and for a film that's that is so unflinching, there's so many close ups of people's faces that are just please see me like, please like. And that's why I think this film is important is I honestly didn't really know just how severe the Nazi occupation in Belarus was. And I think it's a part of World War II that gets um, overshadowed. I want to specifically get into the word that both of you used, which was, which was guilt, which I have to admit wasn't a word that came to me on, on, on this first viewing. Is that something that has built over time? So my first initial viewing, I didn't feel guilt, but I was also freshly in the just like brand new in the military. I'd only been in a year. I hadn't deployed yet. I was kind of like Glora at the beginning of the movie in a way. Like, I still think that this is a way to prove myself. This is how I'm, you know, going to make my way for the world, you know. And then I deployed multiple times and my viewing of this film changed exponentially. Um, and it since getting out of the military, you know, I've been diagnosed with PTSD and Charlie could uh, talk to some of this. I mean, I've just guilt ridden mess <laughs> about some of the stuff that it's, I'd witnessed and seen and done. And I see Flora as somebody who's very um, guilt ridden because even at the scene in the village at the end, when they're burning the church down, he's yelling at the people. They're going to kill you all. Get out, run, leave. He's doing everything in his power to save them. It's just, he's mm. a 15 year old kid. Yeah. He's got no power. He's got no authority. He's got no agency with these people. They think that they're going to be able to save themselves by listening to the Nazis. And he knows better now. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like watching this film, I don't know how this film got made. I don't know how I don't know how he was able to get this many people to film scenes like this. I mean, Will and I have talked about this, too. I mean, I'm always aware that I'm watching a movie, but it almost feels like a documentary at times, which is interesting because, as Michael, you're correct. There are a lot of 
it is a very cinematic film with the close-ups and the tracking shots with the steady cam and stuff like that. And there are, you were right in that it does have some of the same moves as 1917. I mean, there are sweeping shots of soldiers that are showy in a sense, but never feel grandiose in a way that is like, it doesn't feel like in for example, with the Revenant where he's just kind of like, look what I can do. It all feels purposeful and you can almost feel Klimov shaking his head behind the camera. And Another thing that I feel guilt of watching this film is that the main actor who played Flora, Alexei Krav... Sorry, I'm butchering his name. Alexei no, you're fine. Will and I both thought after we watched it that, you know, wow, the makeup is amazing. Like, his hair literally turned gray. The They were firing live rounds of ammunition above its head. And I believe Klumov even had him hypnotized at one point because he was so concerned that he would be traumatized and the hypnosis didn't work. Like, so I do feel that's another thing that I feel like I'm watching, not really a performance. I feel like I'm watching this kid actually go through <laughs> this traumatic th uh, experience. And apparently both uh, Klimov and um, Krivchenko um, both have had nothing but kind things to say about each other. Hmm. The actress who plays Glasha, apparently this is her only film and they can't find her. Like she's dis she's dropped off the face of the earth. So I don't know what her experience was like, too. But, you know, some of the split diopter shots with her in the end are just permanently seared into my brain um, in a way that uh, that is so because the first that I keep thinking about that first shot of her when Flora goes to find her sobbing and it's just that close up where she says, you know, see me basically that whole monologue. And then at the end, paralleling it with the whistle and her bloody face is just so, you know, I feel like I'm watching these two kids basically just go through hell in a way that I don't think anyone could feel any sense of enjoyment about. And I think that's what war films should do. They should make you feel guilty. Like, what is the point of all of this? It's just such a fucking waste. I mean, this film made me angry in the best possible way, which I also mm -hmm. think war films should do. I don't think you should leave the war film feeling comfortable or even just, I think you need to leave kind of in despair, honestly, which is what sure. this film does. Do you guys think it's a problem the Nazis do not necessarily have a, a, a banality. They, they are demonic. They are sadistic in a way that's reminiscent of, of a lot of popular art. And, and some of it obviously is shown in the fact that, like, there's literally timetables to raise this village. They're like, you know, they're already on the move when they're throwing bottles at the church, but there is there is something surprising in a film that is so miasmatic that like the final centerpiece of this film couldn't be more obvious. Or do you guys just see that as a you're tr trying to say that they should be somehow more human? They come I mean, off as no. monsters a little bit <laughs> in the film, but I, I mean, does it, here's does the thing: is yeah. I think he makes an argument against that notion of when he does the thing with the flashback, whenever um, mm. Flora is shooting into the portrait, right? He's trying to reverse everything that's happened. And I think it's one of the most depressing endings of a film I've ever seen because it's something that cannot be done. Yeah. And as he's 
firing into this portrait of Hitler. Everything is all these videos, all this film stock is running in reverse. We're seeing these buildings being rebuilt after they've been crumbled. We're seeing people that have that should be dead are now alive. And it's just working its way backwards in time. And every time he sees Hitler, he keeps shooting him and keeps firing him. It speeds up the process until he gets to the realization that Hitler at one point was a child just like him. People aren't evil. The world makes them evil. These Nazis that we've seen at one point were just like Flora. What shaped them? What changed them to make them behave this way and act this way? Was it self-preservation? I mean, one of the things that this film shows is not all the Nazis um, in that final scene where they're raised in the village is German. They're Czechoslovakian. There are people that have turned sides to stay alive. I can't help but think about how horrific that shot is of there's the woman who is in the car when the barn is being set on fire and she's eating shrimp as if it's popcorn, like just watch like watching a movie. And then Flora does come upon her dead body and just focuses on or She's not dead yet. She's still her, breathing. Her breasts are exposed as, as well, which. Yes. Um, suggests something. And else. Yeah. there's something about that shot that does scream, you know, she's still human. Maybe I'm taking something away from that, but there's also the scene that follows the barn burning where they capture those who set the barn ablaze. And there is something watching them cackling like hyenas made me want to see all of them dead. I wanted them to die exactly that in that way that um, they killed that entire village. And then, you know, they start to say, we're going to do that to you. They pour the gasoline on them and then they shoot them. And it's interesting when you think I, there was a great review on Letterboxd um, by Sally Jane Black, who wrote about, I cannot justify death in any sense. Like it is not our human right to decide who should live or die. But those people did not kill those people in the same way the Nazis did. And in a weird way, that is merciful. And I guess this doesn't really go back. This isn't really talking about should the Nazis be more complex, but it does treat their deaths in a way that I feel like acknowledges that they are still human beings, if that makes any sense. I can't remember who wrote this, but uh, I, I think it might have been Justin Chang who questioned, like, there's not really a lesson to be learned from this movie. I, I think other than sensationalism, I think a big problem with American war films is they do want you to come away with some new clarity about why this was important, why it was as intense as it was. Like, I I think that's interesting because I'm not sure that you do necessarily come away with a with a moral from this because it's so it's so complete in in a in a way like it i guess the the takeaway i get is those drunken late nights of course i would kill baby hitler and i sometimes have to be reminded that i can't do it and that he is a human being and cuz especially with this is also going to sound corny but it's also a part of history that i wasn't really aware of obviously no of course we knew that you know, we know that Nazis did horrible, horrible acts of genocide. Obviously, that's not new in terms of what that I've learned anything in that regard. But it is a side of history that I haven't seen before. And sometimes I feel like I do need to be put through the ringer. That's why I feel like this film is so important, is that we know 
what the Nazis did, but sometimes seeing it, it presents you with a better sense of clarity as to just how horrific it is. And it's funny because I feel like this film should be mandatory viewing and yet don't recommend it to somebody you don't know very well, (laughs) because I feel like there are lots of people who would be obviously triggered by it. And obviously, you know, it could scar them, frankly, but I do feel like it's I feel like that's what makes it so significant and culturally relevant in a way is that sometimes we you know, there are days where I want to look at the news and I can't for my own mental health. And then there are other days where I need to I know I need to look. I need to know what's going on. And that's kind of the way I feel with this film where you do want to look away. But, you know, that for the sake of the film's importance, you can't view it that way. Yeah. Will, what do you, what's your take? <laughs> um, I mean, you're pretty spot on there. In a lot of ways, we live in real comfort And even, especially just in America, we live in this sense of isolation and privilege. And thinking about the video of the little girl separated by her families when they were putting the families in the cages. The deportation? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we were watching it in one of my uh, psych classes. And one of the girls in the class was like, I can't watch more than five seconds of this. This is too painful. And I'm like, well, you should watch it all then. I was (laughs) like, it's a matter of empathy. In my opinion, it's like I don't want to feel discomforted by your pain. So I'm going to just look away. I'm going to ignore it. And you keep doing that and it makes it harder to feel other people's suffering because you're constantly working for ways to look around it, look to try to avoid that discomfort. This film doesn't let you do that. And I think it's interesting that most of the people who say I would absolutely go kill baby Hitler are the very people who have never been put in a situation where they had to make a life and death decision. Um, I think back sometimes on like the Milgram shock experiments, people that were just following orders and stuff like that. But the people that were generally the ones that would most likely follow orders to kill somebody, essentially shock them to their death, were ones that were living in ease, that were living in comfort. Um, They did multiple tests, and most people don't know this, but the ones when they brought in veterans, they didn't push the button Hmm. because they know what it means to actually follow orders and the repercussions of that. You're just a scientist. I don't understand why I have to keep doing this and hurting this person. You know, I've already done that before. I know how this feels. You go through something horrible like that, and you know how what decisions matter and what decisions don't anymore, I think. And uh, me and Charlie were talking about a class I took in ethics once. And the professor apostatized that, you know, you're in a uh, village doing missionary work. And some warlords show up and he gives you a gun. He says, you have to kill 10 people or I'm going to kill everybody. What do you do? And most of the class was like, well, I'm going to put the gun down and I'm going to let God decide. Or, you know, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to, you know, and it got to me. And I'd been out of the military for about a year, and he looked at me. He's like, well, what would you do? I'm like, I'd shoot nine people and then myself. Hmm. I was like, I'm not going to let all these people die. I'm going to make that decision, um, but I'm not going to live with it. I think people who can make these really general rationalizations about what they would do in moments of conflict and moments of trauma have never actually experienced it themselves and never had to make those kinds of decisions. And that's what we're seeing in this film. We're seeing Flora have to make these decisions now. And it's just, it's so powerful to watch, especially for a 15 year old kid to be playing this role and pulling this off in a way that 
I couldn't imagine some actors doing. I have to ask, I'm curious, well, what, what was the class's reaction and the teacher's reaction to your answer? The teacher pretty much knew my history and knew my background. So I think he kind of saw that answer coming. The rest of the class was shocked and upset with me. Hmm. But then again, this was in Middle Tennessee uh, State University in the Bible area. You know, I'm surrounded by a bunch of uh, Christian kids straight out of high school. And I'm an atheist straight out of war. <laughs> so it's just like. <laughs> I, I would like to. I, I mean, we got to talk about the sound design. <laughs> The sound design in yeah. this in this movie is uh, probably one of uh, the the best, and I don't know uh, my at least experience with, with with film. Did you guys have any? This is a huge question. General thoughts uh, about that uh, combination of, of music and uh, ambient sound and. Uh, Inner monologues, outer monologues. <laughs> there's, there, okay, there's a lot of different places to start. The first thing is like the effect of the tinnitus, the ringing in the ears. When we were watching the other night, literally set my tinnitus off. <laughs> like we had to pause mm. the movie and take a minute. I'm like, I got to clear this up because this is so it's very accurate. But the thing that I think I love so much about the sound design is, like I said, especially like the scene where Glasha is dancing on a suitcase and yeah. he's messing with the frame rate and making it seem faster than it is. And it's almost like he's going through shock watching this and he can't hear. So he's putting music to this scene. So he's thinking of cartoon music and stuff like that. He's because he's still a child. And I think a lot of that is like the the way that he creates those screeching sounds, like the the almost unbearable screaming violins mixed in with classical music and stuff like that. It's just depicting this inner turmoil that he is facing inside his head. And it's done sonically, which is amazing. The sound is also just key to the to the horror, too. I mean, the barn burning is just I know we've talked about it a lot, but the screams quite dying down is even more disturbing to me than when the screams start. Mm. Um, and the fl- and as the flames get louder and the screams die out and it's drowned out by the cackling, um, I, I feel like it, the sound design is also just so great with in, uh, internalizing what's going on through his head because mm. it almost feels like that denial is slowly bubbling up in that scene. And then Glasha screaming, they're dead, they're dead. And, you know, then it just keeps getting louder. Yeah. And uh, it really makes your skin crawl in a way that I find to be brilliantly unnerving, while also completely putting you in this character's head in terms of his emotion, his emotional mental state. So it doesn't feel just like technical wizardry for the sake of it doesn't feel showy in a way, even though it is very clearly a very bold choices. And I would like to talk about like the choice of having Mozart's Requiem played at the end of this movie as they're marching off is one of the boldest choices of this film. Cause he's basically <laughs> saying these guys are resigned to death and they are still pushing forward. Like every single one of them is probably going to die. And I think that's the part that really hits me harder is that they know this and they're still going to go because whatever choice do they have? They've seen the horrors that have already befalled them. They have to push on. But I do like the fact that it's you know classical music, which also makes sense. They're in Belarus in 1942. It's not like they have television or 
like they have radio maybe and who knows what's playing on that it's music that would be played a lot in that time period you didn't have rock and roll you didn't have no um these other forms of genres of music and stuff so i think it fits very perfectly with flora's mindset of what he knows of music so it doesn't feel like just a choice by the director like oh well this fits this scene i think it fits that time period also blue danube was used and i can't remember what scene that is as, as well um and then it looks like a lot of folk songs and, and marching songs which is which i think uh does kind of emphasize this certain like dislocation uh, this uh, this has from even like so many of the locales you hear about during World War Two. Like, I don't feel like this is a common area that discussed. No, ab- absolutely. What's playing while the barn burning is going on? Because it just makes it out to be their form of entertainment in a way that, yeah, like is yeah. which is sickening the way that's used diegetically. And um, there's also a lot of scenes of just quiet too. I mean, there are cer- certain scenes that I feel like other movies would use to heighten it with a score, like the scene where he's hiding behind the cow in the middle of the shootout, yes. and it's just the bullets. It's nothing else. I, I, a choice that I found to be interesting this time around, the people who he enlists with are almost framed menacingly, in a way, mm. like through the window, Like especially considering they're so tall. I can imagine any other American war movie putting some sappy, melodramatic, goopy score in the middle of there. It's interesting how the score itself is used to create such palpable dread, and it kind of totally contrasts, I think, brilliantly with the classical music that also is interspersed. Uh, I think it's also interesting that, like, he doesn't give us really any of the traditional music cues to, like, elicit, like, okay, be prepared for this. Like, when the Nazis show up out of the fog and they're getting out of the... It's silent. Yeah. yeah. There's no sound. There's normally like an American war film would start to build up that tension, like, oh, get ready for this. And instead, it's just complete silence. I think that's really effective, too, with the planes in the air, the, the way yes. they, you know, almost become spectral at a certain yeah. point. I, I think you guys are, are both right. It's, it's not only the, the cues, but it's, it's when they choose to, to keep it silent. I, I think one other scene I'm thinking of is when the, when two of their friends, I guess, friends in air, air quotes, yeah. get blown up by the mine when, when he's with that one guy. That's, that scene is not really given any moment. Like they're moving on to the next thing. You know, there's no rising urgency in the score. There's, if anything, I don't know if there's any score at that part as, as well. Um, I don't think there is. To, yeah, I don't think there is. I, I do want to speak about one particular thing that's hardly come up, though. I, I'm curious, what do you guys make of the nearly constant crying? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting how I haven't, I, you know, I didn't even really think about that because um, it just felt so natural. It was like, why wouldn't they just be sobbing their eyes out the entire time? That's um, a fair point. <laughs> There is a scene, Will and I talked about this, where it's when he approaches Glasha when she's crying and he's crying. And he kind of assumes, at least from the way we interpreted it, that he starts crying and then she starts laughing and then he starts laughing. And it's like he thinks that she's crying for similar reasons. And it's not at all like she has seen shit that he is not. And he is just like, I want to be a grown up and go out and, you know, be with the big kids, you know, and. 
she is clearly traumatized and has seen horrific things. We don't know where she really came from, really. I mean, we don't know no. what she's seen or her background or anything. And then he starts to be like, whoa, you're fucking crazy. What are you talking about? And then, of course, yeah, I mean, all the scenes of him crying and sticking his head in the muck. And But yeah, you're right. I can't really think of war movies that have a ton of... I mean, there are sequences where obviously like the Saving Private Ryan and crying for his mother. Yeah. There's brief glimpses like that. But you're right. They don't force you often in close ups. All of it's almost in close ups to just their their pain and their suffering and their trauma. It's always in a foxhole, like in a yeah. trench. Like it's like uh, people being like, uh, you know, God save me. Yeah, it's unceasing I, in this in a way that was very, very strange and not just surreal, but like at first distracting like I, I had I had a hard time trying to find myself in this <laughs> in this movie in a way for for a long time will do you have anything to add uh, try not to cry um, uh, <laughs> oh. uh, I mean you're right a lot of films don't and it's one of my issues I think I talked mm. about like earlier when I cried into my sergeant's arms that was my first deployment in Afghanistan, we were helping build a runway in Kabul and we're like in this little mountain trench area building this thing and we're getting mortared every night. And one night a mortar found my friend's tents and I lost three guys that I cared about deeply in like the span of five seconds. And I remember curling up into a ball and just crying for my mother and not being able to move. I was paralyzed with fear and pain. And the sergeant that I cried on had to pull me aside, slap the crap out of me to get me to pull out of it and get to a bunker so that I was safe. You don't see that in American war films because American war films are all about exceptionalism. They're all about honor and bravery. And honestly, real bravery comes from still persevering when you are absolutely terrified. That's the real bravery, and you don't see that in films often. I think the truest depiction of any like real soldier I've ever seen is in Saving Private Ryan with the reporter. But when he can't get up the stairs, when he can't save his buddies because he's terrified. And I remember seeing that with friends, and they're like, well, he was chicken. I was like, yeah, but he's also never seen combat before. Now he's put in this situation. How would you react? You know, I was just like, the other guys, you know, they came from D-Day. They've seen horrors beyond belief they've, they've already been desensitized so it's very able to react quick and accurate um and this is the first time he's really been put in this conflict and he's paralyzed and the first time it's, that's the way i was you have to get used to it and that's a terrible thing to say you have to get adapted to these atrocities and living with that fear all the time so that you can keep pushing on um and yeah you don't see that in american films or war films at least i, I still think the best film i've ever seen about the experiences of soldiers, especially like say after World War Two, is um, best years of our lives. Yes, mm. I was thinking of that too. Have you seen that, and Michael? I have not, but I'm I'm very I'm very familiar with it, and I, I know it's something I need to get to. Mm-hmm. But that's entirely post-war time, literally baby boomers like coming back from war and trying to settle into something of uh, normalcy. Is that yeah. a fair yeah. way to characterize that? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, it's an impossibility. It, it's weird the way trauma trauma is corrosive. It gets down into your bones to the point where it never leaves you. Um, 
I was in the military for eight years, deployed half of that time, maybe total. So four years. I'm 36 now, and those four years take up more of my mind space than anything else that's happened to me. It defines me in a way, and it really sucks when you define yourself or you're defined by something horrible that has happened to you, but you can't escape it. And you try to come back to the real world, I guess you could say, um, civilization, and you're so isolated because so few people know what it's like to go through what you've been through. And you don't dare talk about it with people because you're worried about being ostracized or viewed wrong because there's chances you've done something horrible or you've seen something horrible that could easily get you judged. <laughs> it's difficult to really put into words. The easiest thing I can explain is like the chances of you getting PTSD as an American soldier are something like I think 26, 27 percent. I'm going off of old studies. Sure. But in Israel, in like Tel Aviv, the chances of getting PTSD is like less than one percent. And that's because you live in it. You're constantly surrounded by this. You become hmm. indoctrinated into it in a very young age. And when you're out of it, you're still around it. And you're around people who have also been experiencing it this whole time. So you don't have that level of separation. You have this group mentality that keeps you connected. And for American soldiers, we're over in the Middle East where all this is happening. And then we come back here and it's completely alien to us. And we have no way to grasp or explain what we've been through in a way. And I would love to see that in a film, a modern film. I really would. But how do you depict that? How do you make that work and not make it seem overly sentimental um, or even try to justify some of the actions that we've taken? Hollywood tends to sensationalize PTSD and really dumb it down in such a way, which it's a very complex disorder. I can only think of two films that kind of get it really well, and both of them are directed by women, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, one is uh, You Were Never Really Here, which rocked me to my core. Oh, um, okay. Um, I remember watching that one and uh, my girlfriend at the time having to bring me down because I was almost in a manic state. Like I was jumping. I was trying to do everything in my power not to react to this film and in the way I was reacting to it because – like there's scenes in You Were Never Really Here where he's driving and like the flashing lights send him back. And it's just like a quick snippet. It's nothing like these long, drawn out things. And it's his body reacting or not being able to control certain reactions he has to things. The way that his eyes are constantly glancing all around or at a dead stare. And the reason I say I think it's appropriate that a woman directed it is when I got out of the military, I was in the VA for a little bit and – um was going through a PTSD group, trauma group. And the guys, we were all kind of out of it in a way because we're not used to this such a sense of vulnerability. And the women in the group seemed to be handling it much better than we were. Like they're still traumatized. Mm. They're still suffering from PTSD, but they seem to be coping with it just a slightly bit better. And I got a chance to talk with one of the women and she's like, well, I live with this my entire life. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? She's like, well, I'm a woman. I'm constantly looking over my back at, you know, men and areas, you know, we're taught from the beginning not to trust any interaction we're having. It's because we're being hunted by predators all the time and men don't experience that. And what PTSD really is, is removing the buffers that make our everyday lives livable. Like we're in constant danger all the time and we never notice it because we live in this little buffer. And when you have PTSD, that buffer is removed. And all those dangers become stark reality. Our 
senses. I don't want to say heightened, like we're superheroes or anything like that, but we're, we can't control. I can't go into a restaurant anymore that's packed because I don't hear one conversation. I hear every conversation and it makes me sick to my stomach and gives me horrible headaches. And then when I try to control that and try to, it just makes things worse and I spiral. I've, like I said, I've seen that in a disorder, which is a French film with Diane Kruger, kind of yeah. get that right. I, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard a lot about that one, actually. Uh, Alice Wincour, I, I think, is the director of, of that one. I think one. so, yeah. I think a lot of what you're, you're saying um, I, will, I, in a way, does kind of give more, more credence to a lot of these things that I did find alien for a while, or took a while to situate into and honestly probably is why a lot of people use the word surrealism for 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 this film so much when it's not disingenuous to like how imagery is deployed or anything but in a way it it does seem like it, it takes it away from the actual um gravity of the situation in a weird way it's just fascinating to me that this is a film that is endured in in the way it has. And I remember, um, like at least five years ago, I remember when I first joined like a letterbox, like people would have huge lists of their greatest films of all time. And I would constantly see this in a top 10. And I was like, what the, what the fuck is that? That looks like a a sci-fi movie from the, you know, almost like psychedelic cover. So it, it, it is so strange to me, the the way conversation has, has developed uh, about this movie, and I think in a way, both of the ways you guys are describing it has given it a very different tenor that I almost want to rewatch it with, because I think I was so prepared for all of this nightmarish, and nightmarish in the sense of like unreality, that it's 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 hard for me to grapple with so much of it other than that barn burning or excuse me, church burning scene. It is interesting how, when it felt like the world was ending, both Will and I went for this film, we viciously sought it out. And (laughs) it's interesting to me now that it seems like everyone else is too. And what does that say about the state of cinephilia right now <laughs> that we're all like, I know a lot of people right now who are like, I'll watch that when the pandemic's over, which totally understandable. Sure. Um, this is a fucked up silver lining to say, but it did also, I mean, it is a reminder that when people say we're living in the darkest timeline, they didn't live through this. So like, yeah, there is a fucked up sense of privilege that I felt after watching this being like, well, the world's on fire, but I'm safe indoors and I'm not. But yeah, like more and more people are seeing this film. Maybe it just has to coincidentally do with the fact that Criterion gave it a release and it's on the channel now. But sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence because like we said earlier, I watched this film when I was in the military after every like horrible event that occurred. It's like, yeah. oh, my world's on fire. I feel awful. Time to watch. Come and see. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, my God. <laughs> Why do you guys think that um, you are continuing to rewatch it? Are, are you delineating it with like certain emotional experiences during this? Uh, I, well, well, I know you've already spoken about when you know when you were in the military, but like uh, Charlie, you've also said that you've watched it a number yeah, of times. Well, 
Will has been gracious enough to let me and my roommate do laundry at his place instead of uh, risking our lives at a public laundromat. And uh, so Will and I watched it and then my roommate really wanted to watch it. And we were kind of like, "Okay, yeah, we'll watch it again. There's a really interesting little very mini interview with Karen Kusama talking about how she saw it in the theater and then she went back to go see it the next day because she felt so traumatized by it that she needed to wrestle with her feelings about it. And I think that Hmm. is also why I watched it twice. And then I watched it again to obviously prep for this. We both did. So, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to revisit it anytime soon right now, but I mean, I have the criterion and I, it's a film. It's why I wanted to talk about it today. You know, it's why I wanted to watch it again because my roommate wanted to watch it and we wanted to talk about it with him because it just had such a huge impact on us. I I relate to Will in a lot of ways where sometimes I feel bad and I do want to watch just something light and fluffy, but there are times where I do get catharsis out of intense uh, trauma. So I, I don't know how you feel when it comes to like your own, I have my own fucked up, comfort viewing and it's not like i don't like feel sad and throw on his girl friday every now and then which of course but yeah no it, the comfort thing is i, I think it's interesting because you're right that it is a total spectrum like uh one of my good friends mulholland drive is one of his go-to comfort films oh that's one of mine too I, i'm with him <laughs> on that <laughs> but I, I think i mentioned this again because you know this is this is one of that big, those big ones that that come up, uh, as Will was saying, like with Requiem for a Dream, with Salo, with like, you know, their endurance tests as much as films that like you should probably see. Them. <laughs> but like yeah. I, I can understand if someone's like, you know, I saw that once and I'm never going to watch it again. So like it's not necessarily to uh, put you guys as outsiders or <laughs> anything oh, no. like that. <laughs> I, I'm surprised, Will, that out of the military, you still are watching. Are, are, have you still watched this a uh, number of times since uh, being out of the military? So the first time I watched it since getting out of the military was when me and Charlie watched it for when he watched okay. it for the first time. I think what I get out of watching this film is, I mean, and Charlie can attest to this, is I have moments of where my depression and my anxiety and my guilt from my trauma hit me so hard that I I'm immobile. I I can't really function and I don't want to feel that way. And so I'll put on something like this or I'll put on something like grave of the fireflies or something so crushingly depressing because I want to continue feeling this, but I don't want to feel it about myself. I want to redirect it. It's kind of twisted, but I think that's one of the reasons why I also got into um, mental health. Uh, I'm a mental health counselor now. And you put me in a room with somebody and I'm talking about their, their, their pain, their suffering, what they're working through and stuff like that. And I am focused and I can stay on track. The second I'm away from that and my mind is I'm by myself, I'm gone. I'm lost. I need that kind of direction. I need something to pull my mind out of my own personal hell. I need to direct it as something else. And that's what this movie does for me. Now, after the movie's over, <laughs> that's a totally different <laughs> subject. Um... But and like I said, I also think it's it's almost and I'm not to try to undermine anybody who cuts or does anything like that. But I, I think it is a way for me to cause self-harm in a way watching this film as much as I have. It's a, a release of that kind of anguish. Cause that's what cutting is, is it's a way to purge yourself a little bit of pain. You cut, cause pain elsewhere so you don't feel it in another way. Sure. 
Well, uh, that is our discussion of Come and See. But um, real quick, uh, the last thing um, before uh, where we can find you guys, I like to ask uh, guests what... If a listener liked this film, we've mentioned a lot of different things um, today, but I'm just curious if there is one or two things that you'd recommend uh, that have this, uh, you know, similar texture, similar themes. What would you recommend people watch after this? And you guys can just do like... I mean, we've mentioned it, but and I wouldn't watch this immediately afterwards, but Grave of the Fireflies is uh, captures uh, coming of age in war-torn Japan in a way that is so unbelievably devastating, but so moving. It's emotionally grueling in a similar way that, uh, that, uh, but not in term, but in a completely different medium. Uh, There's horror, but it's not the specific type of, it's not graphic in the way that this film is graphic. So I'd throw that out. There's also one other film I forgot to mention that also feels similar in terms of a filmmaker making a film about coming of age during uh, the Nazi occupation um, that is also semi-autobiographical called Au Revoir Les Enfants by Louis Mao about Mm. um, these two boys at a boarding school. And one of them is Jewish and is being hidden from the Nazis. This one is also devastating, but I'd say much more easily palatable than come and see and almost plays like, I mean, it's, it's for adults too, but it almost plays like a children's film in some ways. I think it's only peachy, um, but is very, it's truly haunting and beautiful. And um, so I think that might be on the Criterion channel. It's definitely on the Criterion collection, so it will probably be swing. If it's not, it will definitely be circulating at some point, I'm sure. Yeah. So I've got, uh, too many. I'll try to keep it down. Uh, but um, one that I comes to mind instantly is uh, Forbidden Games, uh, Renee Clement, which is um, about this little girl who's lost her family during a Nazi um, plane raid. Like they're shut down while trying to escape Paris, and just she's five and she's trying to even come to grasp and understand what death even is, and she becomes obsessed along with this uh, farm boy of this family that takes her in with burying any dead animals that they find and putting crucifixes up and create a game out of it. And they don't seem to grasp how macabre this all is because they just don't understand. Like there's at one point when the mother is killed and the daughter like touches her cheek to try to wake her up. And nothing happens is she touches her cheek to try to like, what's the difference here? She never cries. She never has this emotional breakdown because she just doesn't grasp it. Um, and it's a beautiful film. The other one I'd recommend is I've talked about already. I'd recommend you were never really here because it's a great depiction of getting inside somebody's mind space of like really understanding the way people think and experience emotions during trauma, Hmm. um, which I think this film does a great job of. And finally, I would probably say um, that 11 minute uh, short film that Inaratu did about September 11th that uses sound design almost entirely to depict this horrible, tragic event. Um, because like the screen's black for, I think 10 minutes of the film with snippets of just flashes of news footage and stuff like that. And so it's, everything's in your head. You're depicting all these horrible tragedies and the sound design is just feeding that. Um, like I remember there's like one shot where you see a body falling uh, from the towers and then it cuts to black again. And then in the 
slight, just muddled sound, you hear a FUD. And you're like, oh, crap, that's the body hitting the ground. Or um, there's a moment where you hear this horrible sound. It sounds like something is caving in on you. And you realize it's the tower's falling. And you're inside. And the way that your mind is able to empathetically depict these final moments of these people that died horribly in this tower, this towers is powerful. And then last, it's not a film, but if you want to get like that kind of experience of like Mozart's Requiem, but you don't like classical music, I couldn't recommend more. Um, Bell, Witch's mirror reaper, which is a doom metal song album. That is an hour and 15 minutes long. Like it's one song that just keeps going. And they made it after um, their lead singer died. And so they actually even use snippets of his voice and oh, wow. prior recordings in the music. And it's basically all just one big funeral march for an hour and 15 minutes. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, that has been our discussion of uh, Elim uh, Klimov's um, Come and See. We apologize profusely for any... Uh, terrible pronunciation. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you uh, for uh, listening. Before we go, though, this film is on uh, Criterion, if you'd like to watch it, including two other comedies from Klimov. And um, finally, guys, uh, where can we uh, find you uh, these days? You can follow me on Twitter and on Letterboxd at ctnash91. That's ctnash91. I don't know how to answer this because I really <laughs> don't have a social media presence whatsoever <laughs> that's um, fine yeah uh i have a facebook page but i don't really post anything on it and i have a twitter so i can read other people's tweets but i don't write anything on that either so <laughs> well that we're might change to... that might change but uh for now uh yeah you can find me on Twitter at at Snydell and on Letterboxd at my name where I occasionally put up capsules of random things I'm watching. Um, and you can also find me on Intermission, which will now be at least more regular. And uh, again, uh, thank you, Will and Charlie, for uh, coming on today and really having this uh, soul rending seems like the proper <laughs> term. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us on. I mean, it was it went to some dark places, but it was honestly a, w- a wonderful conversation. And I really appreciate you having us on. Yeah, of course. Yes. Uh, thanks. Like I said, it was it was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you on the next intermission. Thanks for listening. Enjoy a world of cinema with Film Movement Plus streaming subscription. Award-winning independent features, documentaries, and shorts, as well as restored classics, are all waiting for you to discover. Plus, there are guaranteed new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But because you're an intermission listener, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code STAGE when signing up. So go to filmmovementplus.com and start streaming today. 